Have you ever read a book or maybe watched a movie and you think you have all the characters figured out? You know exactly who the hero is and who the villain is like five minutes in. You're like, oh yeah, I know the plot line. I know this is where this is going. I know how this is going to end. And somewhere near maybe the the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie, all of a sudden you discover that the one that you thought was the hero is actually the villain. And the one that you thought was the villain is actually the hero. And there's a role reversal that comes just completely unexpectedly out of the blue. We see this in movies, we see this in books all the time. Think about the epic movie, one of my favorites, Despicable Me, right? Gru is an evil villain whose goal is to, be, to become the most notorious villain to ever live, right? He's on this mission, and yet by the end of the movie, he has become this soft, compassionate, caring father to three adopted daughters. Or think about the movie Pride and Prejudice. I say the movie because this will shock probably the English teachers in the room. I've never read the book, but I've seen the movie lots of times. We have girls in our house. And so I assume the movie follows the book or the book follows the movie, one or the other. But Jane Austen, the author, wants us to like Mr. Wickham at the beginning and to dislike Mr. Darcy. And yet by the end we find out that Mr. Wickham is a fraud and Mr. Darcy is in fact Elizabeth's true love. This passage in Luke chapter 14 is a little bit like that. So if you're new here, let me just kind of catch you up. We are in the Gospel of Luke. We've been making our way section by section for a while now through the Gospel. Luke is a physician. Luke is also a traveling ministry partner with the church planter and teacher by the name of Paul. And he is writing now about 30 years after Jesus has gone back to heaven. And the reason he writes, as he tells us in chapter 1, is to give us certainty that Jesus is who he said he is, which is the Son of God, the Savior of all who believe in him. So Luke is writing to give us certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why he writes. Now this is important because it's likely that many in Luke's time are wondering if this Jesus who lived a few decades before was actually the Messiah. Like by now, 30 years later, his band of followers is hardly impressive. In fact, even as Luke writes, the Jesus movement has already grown, but it generally was not filled with the kind of people that you would expect. Instead, was made up of not only the rich, but also the very poor. It was made up of not only the educated, but also lots of uneducated. It was made up of some high-powered people, but the majority of the people had no earthly power and no earthly influence. This Jesus movement, 30 years after Jesus went to heaven, was made up of all kinds of people. But most of the people who followed Jesus Christ and his teachings at this time were those who would have been the least expected to follow Jesus. In fact, by this time, only a small percentage of Jews were actually Christians. 
this would have been shocking to many because the Jews had the history. The Jews had the prophecies. The Jews were like the ones who grew up in Christian homes today, who grew up going to church and going to vacation Bible school and hearing the stories about Jesus sitting around the dinner table at night and hearing prayers and hearing Bible stories before bedtime. Like if anyone would have recognized the Messiah and followed him, it certainly would have been the Jews. But overwhelmingly, they did not follow Jesus. Instead, as the group of Jesus followers grew, it included mostly Gentiles, mostly non-Jews, and not just Gentiles. But so much of the growth in the early church was those who were the most unlikely of followers of Jesus Christ. Notorious sinners, the people who have been, would have been considered the least likely to be saved, the least likely to recognize and respond to Jesus. In other words, there was an incredible role reversal. The Jews, the most likely to believe, didn't believe. And the most unlikely to believe actually turned and trusted in Jesus. And they've together formed the most unlikely family. And so as we go to this text this morning, we could approach this text simply as something that Jesus said to a group of people a couple thousand years ago, and we could just leave it there. But I think this text has something to say for us today. In fact, there are at least four important ways that the text this morning applies to all of us today. And I want to I give you those four ways that this text applies as really the lenses through which we should be looking at these verses this morning. So first, this text is for those who think you are a part of the people of God, the family of God, but in fact you are not. Like you think you are a part of the people of God because maybe you You've grown up going to church, maybe you grew up with Christian parents, maybe you own a Bible, maybe you keep it on your nightstand, maybe you know some scripture verses, maybe you support a missionary or two or five. So you think, well, I must be right with God because look at all the things I do. But in reality, you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and death. This text is also for those here this morning who feel like you don't fit in with the people of God. Maybe you look around and you think, well, I didn't go to Christian university. I didn't go to Christian school. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I don't have a Christian background. I don't know the Bible stories. My life before Jesus was really, really immoral. My life before Jesus was really, really bad. In fact, I'm still amazed that God would want anything to do with me. And I, even as I gather with other Christians, I feel so far behind because I don't even know the things that they just assume everyone else knows. And if that's you this morning, this text has something for you as well. This text is also for those, thirdly, who wonder if you have done enough if you're godly enough, if you're faithful enough, not only to be a Christian, but to stay a Christian. You think, you know what, I, I'm just overwhelmed every day by how 
far short I fall of God's glorious standard. And I'm trying to be faithful to the Lord and I'm trying to trust in Christ and I'm trying to walk by faith and not by sight. And yet every day I'm just reminded how frail I am and how weak I am and how fallen I am. Friend, this has something to say to you this morning. And fourth, this text is for those who look around our world and think that the mission of Jesus Christ is losing. You look around and it seems as though the rich and the powerful and the influential and the educated are generally not turning and trusting in Jesus Christ. And as you look around at the followers of Jesus Christ and you look across the globe at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it looks like it is made up of a lot of misfits, a lot of outcasts, a lot of forgottens, a lot of has-beens, a lot of also-rans. And you think, well, if, if the gospel is actually true, why don't we see more of the influential following Jesus? Why don't we see more of the powerful following Jesus? Why don't we see more of the sophisticated and the educated following Jesus? And maybe there are some seeds of doubt in your mind. Well, is this gospel message really true? Is the kingdom of God actually real? If that's you this morning, this text has something to say to you as well. So, God's spirit inspires Luke to include these words of Jesus so that we would better understand the mission of Jesus Christ and we would understand more clearly the makeup of the people of God. And so that instead of maybe seeing the church of Jesus Christ and thinking maybe that Jesus' mission was a failure, we would see that Jesus predicted and explained why the most unlikely to believe would actually follow Jesus Christ and why those who sometimes are the most likely to believe would actually turn and reject Jesus. So, let's set the stage. It is Sabbath day, Saturday. Jesus has been invited to the home of a ruler of the synagogue, a ruler of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, you remember, were the religious elite in Israel. As we saw over the last couple of weeks, Jesus has some very direct, very clear, and very hard to hear things to say to these people. So as you recall, he has already confronted them for twisting God's law and using it to deny the humanity of those in need. He's challenged them already to face uh, the way that they have acted in pride and wanting the best seats in the house and wanting to be seen by others, wanting to impress others, failing to practice hospitality, wanting to be repaid for all their righteous deeds. And Jesus turns all of that around and Jesus tells us that we are not to be like these Pharisees. We're not to be like that. Instead, we're to live humbly. That rather than trying to impress people, those around us, we should seek to try to impress Jesus Christ alone. But Jesus isn't done yet. He has one more thing to say at this dinner party. Although, I'm, I'm just wondering if the ruler of the Pharisees who invited Jesus over and his other kind of Pharisee cadre, if they're like thinking, okay, can we just like, hey, can we just bring out the dessert? 
<laughs> Can we just like get done with this meal and get on? Because this is really uncomfortable. This is getting more awkward. Every time Jesus speaks, he is indicting us more, and this just gets more and more and more awkward. Can we just get this meal over with, this night over with, and everyone just go home? But in the middle of all of this, someone speaks up. And we don't know this man's intention, but it seems as though maybe he speaks up to try to be the teacher's pet. We're not sure. But in verse 15, he speaks up. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, heard what Jesus has just said, how Jesus has just challenged the crowd, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to examine them. Please excuse me. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So we need to understand a little bit about what's going on here. And to do that, let me give you some background. The Bible teaches us that becoming a part of the kingdom of God, becoming a part of the people of God, is like joining a family. In fact, the family imagery or the family metaphor is the most common picture that the Bible uses to describe what it looks like or what it means to be a part of the church. It's the most common way that the Bible refers to the people of God. It's as brothers and sisters in the same faith with God as our common father. And the Bible also tells us that tells us that there are blessings that come from being a part of the family of God. And at the center of those blessings is having our own seat at the dinner table. We see this reflected in our own homes, don't we? Like the dinner table is where we gather together after a long day spent in different places. The dinner table is where we gather together to share stories about the day and things that have happened, where we laugh together, where we talk together, where we tease together. It's where we enjoy good food with the people we love. And when we sit at the table together and we look around, we know that we have belonging. We know that we have a place for us. This is so appropriate even on Orphan and Adoption Sunday because Many of you in this room have been a part of adopting children or fostering children. Some of you in this room were adopted. You were fostered as a child. And you know the significance of having your very own seat at the dinner table, your own seat in the home, how it communicates belonging, the fact that you're a part of the family. And the imagery of a dinner table is strong in the Bible, and for good reason. Because knowing we have a seat at the table communicates something. 
And the Bible tells us that one day Jesus will return. And after judging the world and after separating his people from those who reject him, God will restore the creation. He will create a new heavens and a new earth. And when we think of a new heaven and a new earth, we're not to think of two separate entities, but we are to think of the merging of heaven and earth together so that the dwelling place of God will be now the dwelling place of humanity. God will restore all things. God will live with his people, his children, and we will be with him forever. And within this new creation, the Bible tells us that one of the most glorious things that will happen is that we will sit down with Jesus Christ to enjoy what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb of God is Jesus Christ We will sit down together with every other blood-bought son or daughter of Jesus Christ. And together we will gather around that dinner table to enjoy a meal unlike any other because Jesus will be there. This will be a meal that is better than any meal that you could imagine with your hero, with your favorite athlete, with a movie star. Because it will be a meal with the Messiah with our Savior. And this meal, this dinner together, will be to celebrate the fact that the church, which the Bible calls the bride of Christ, will then be united to her groom, which the Bible says is Jesus the Christ. This uniting that we have been longing for, even now in this kind of quasi-betrothal period while we're waiting for the bridegroom to come for us as his bride, will one day be fulfilled. The waiting will be over and we will feast together with Jesus. And so this meal around the table, this feasting, is something that we as the church long for. It's something that we hope for. Something that every Christian looks forward to. In fact, I hope, as I'm seated around the table, I have Tara on one side and the Apostle Paul on the other. That'll be fantastic. Actually, maybe in light of Pastor Taylor's message last week, we should all just hope for the foot of the table, like the position of least honor. Let the Lord like, sort it out from there. We don't know how all that will go, but it will be glorious. Now, you might be thinking, well, what in the world, Eric, does that have to do with our text this morning? Here's how it connects. Jesus is at a banquet, and he has just challenged the people at a banquet when he sees how they posture and how they jockey for places of honor, and he calls it out. And then some guy in the room, hearing what Jesus said, makes a statement about eating bread and having supper together in the kingdom of God. He's referring to this marriage supper of the Lamb, this meal that we will enjoy in the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. So it's, it's, it's as though this man has taken the whole conversation from a simple dinner party at the home of the ruler of the Pharisees and he has now like projected it onto the great kingdom dinner to come. And Jesus, never one to miss an opportunity to convey an eternal reality, uses this moment to point to something bigger. And what Jesus points to is this. God's kingdom is made up of the most unexpected people. 
Those who don't just act like Christians, but those who follow him. And so Jesus tells us this story about a great banquet. Now, when we think of this great banquet, we shouldn't think of hot dogs and bratwurst on the grill in the backyard. This is lavish, right? This is, this is more Flemings than Waffle House. There are probably like seven different kinds of meats. There are rare delicacies. You, you name it, it's there. Whatever you like, it's there, right? The best chicken tiki masala, right? Spice level eight, it's there, right? Around the table. And it appears that the reservations have already gone out, and it also appears that RSVPs have already been received from what Jesus said in verse 17. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. We get the impression that there are those who were invited, those who maybe have even RSVP'd. At a minimum, they were invited, they received the invitation, and they put it on their fridge. Maybe they circled the date on their calendar, like, hey, I want to go to this. I want to be a part of this. And this is a date that should have been circled on the calendar of everyone who had been invited. Like, this is a save the date that should have immediately gone on the fridge. I mean, why would anyone not want to come to this banquet? Everything has been prepared. Like the host have, has thought of every single detail to assure that this is an incredible experience for everyone who attends. But there's a problem. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to examine them. Please excuse me. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Like this can't miss event is declined by these three individuals. They say thanks, but you know, I've, I've got other things to do. Notice their reasons for not attending. Like wouldn't you look at a field before you bought it? Like, wouldn't you already have inspected these five yoke of oxen before you swiped the credit card? Like, you would. These are pathetic excuses. And while the Old Testament did provide a season where if you had just gotten married, you did not have to go into battle, you didn't have to go out with the military, that had nothing to do with a banquet. Like, this guy could have come and brought his wife together. The excuses are miserable, and that's the point. We're supposed to think this is ridiculous. It's crazy to turn down an offer such as this for something so insignificant. And here's the thing. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish religious leaders. He's at the home of a ruler of the Pharisees. And he is saying that there are those who will act as though they will be at the banquet. There are those who will act as though they will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There are those who have heard the invitation, received the invitation, maybe even put it up on the refrigerator. But because they had other things to do, because they found other things more important, they will not be there. Not because they weren't invited because they were distracted. 
because they found other things more significant. The Jews that Jesus is talking to had every opportunity to know the prophecies and to see his ministry and to turn and trust in him, but tragically, many of them did not. They simply found other things more important. Now, don't miss this because this is not just about the Jews. This is also about us. Because there is a danger that if you grew up in a Christian home and went to VBS and knew lots of Bible stories and have a Bible on your nightstand and are involved in different ministries in the local church, there is a danger that even if you are involved in all of those things, you may not actually be seated around the banquet table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because you never turned and trusted by faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sin. You never turn from unbelief to belief in Jesus Christ as the only way to be made right with God. We see the role reversal here in this text. Those whom we would expect to trust in Jesus, those whom we would expect to accept the invitation and come to the banquet are the very ones who, when the actual time for the party comes, are unwilling to come. They never turn and respond to the invitation. Like friends, listen, Jesus, the Son of God, came from heaven to earth and was born as a human to live in our world without sin and willingly chose to go to the cross and surrender his life and to die as a substitute so that all who believe in him, all who trust in him, that he is the son of God, that he died as a substitute for my sin, receive not only forgiveness, but receive adoption. Receive a seat at the table. Tragically, so many hear the gospel message and think that, well, I've heard it, and so that must make me right. I've heard it, and that must mean I'm okay. I've heard it, and I actually even think that it's probably true. And maybe that's you here this morning. You've heard the gospel over and over and over again. You've heard this message over and over again, but you've never actually turned. You've never actually put the weight of your trust and confidence for your eternal soul onto the solid ground of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're still trusting in the fact that while I teach Sunday school or I give some money to the church or I know some Bible verses or I try to live a moral person and you're banking on that as your hope for right standing with God. You're banking on that as your like purchase ticket to get a seat at the table one day around the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, how does the host respond to those who refuse to come? Look at verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. 
And the master said to the serpent, servant, not serpent, very different text of scripture. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So how does the host respond to those who refuse to come? He's angry, according to verse 21. In fact, he says in verse 24 that none of those who had received an invitation and declined will ever taste of the banquet at this glorious feast. And then he does something else, something important. He tells his servant to go out and to find the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and to invite them to the banquet. Go out and find the people who would be overlooked. The people that, just like we saw last week in Pastor Taylor's message, would not be able to repay for the invite. The people who would not be able to even afford a seat around the table, even if it were auctioned off. Go invite the people who would seem the most unlikely to have a seat around the table and tell them that the banquet is ready. The price has been paid. All they have to do is come. Jesus is making a theological statement. He is telling us something about the DNA of God's family. He is showing us what we will see when we look around the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to be shocked by some of the people who are sitting there. And so will those around the table because some of them will be looking at you. And therefore, Jesus is telling us who has access to the saving work of God. This is a massive role reversal. Those who had access to the prophecies and knowledge of the Bible and the benefits of growing up with Christian parents, these people don't get in just because of their status. Like We all must turn to Jesus in faith. And likewise, those of you who didn't grow up with Christian parents and who have experienced setbacks in life and who feel pushed to the margins and feel like maybe you've done too much and sinned too greatly and been too immoral or too disadvantaged in life to ever, ever have a chance to have a seat around the table, this message is that there is a seat around the table. All you have to do is turn and trust in Jesus Christ, trusting him by faith as the Son of God, as the forgiver of your sin, as the Messiah. Like We should be rightly amazed that the God of the universe opens his table to those who don't deserve it. Because that is the only kind of people God saves. Like None of us deserve a seat at the table on our own. In fact, that's what separates the responses of these two groups of people. Let me try to illustrate it like this. At the risk of connecting an eternally glorious reality to something 
as trivial as sports. Let me just try to make the point like this. Let's say you have season tickets to the Bengals. And there's a game coming up, Sunday's coming, but you also really need to rake the leaves. You've been kind of tired, maybe had the sniffles a little bit lately. You know what, if you go to the game, it's getting cold out, you got to get out of church, try to hurry down there, eat something on the way, fight traffic, get in there, get to the stadium, bundle up. You're not sure what the weather's going to be like on Sunday. So you're going to pass. I mean, there's always another game. Always going to be another opportunity. But what if you don't have season tickets? What if you've lived your whole life as a Bengals fan and you have dreamed of going to a game, but you have never had the opportunity? In fact, you know that because tickets are expensive and your income is low, you know that you will likely never be able to afford a ticket to the Bengals game. And then someone from church on a random Sunday says, hey, you know what, I've got a couple tickets to the Bengals game in six weeks. I'm not going to use them. Here, I want you to have these tickets. It doesn't matter if you have things on the calendar. For that date, six weeks in advance, you're going to move stuff around. You don't care if you have leaves to rake. I mean, leaves could be a foot high in your grave. You don't care about that. I have just received that which I could never pay for, that which I thought I would never have the opportunity to do. You don't care that you're going to have to fight traffic, try to scarf something down after church on your way down to the game, try to get in there. You're going to have to bundle up. You don't care about any of that because you have received an invitation that you thought you did not deserve. Do you know who does not jump at an invitation to attend a banquet like this? Who doesn't jump at an opportunity to go to a banquet like this? Those who think they deserve it on their own. Those who think, well, of course I was invited. Of course I should be there. I mean, I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I've tried to do the right things. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. I went to a Christian university. I went to seminary. Of course God would invite me. And here's the point. You and I were born into this world separated from God by our sin. There is no way that we could ever earn or merit a place at the table at the marriage supper when Jesus returns. There is no way we on our own could ever make ourselves right with God. But God, because the Bible says he is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, has made us alive even when we were dead in our sin. He chooses to make a place around the table for those who don't deserve it. And then he calls us by the Holy Spirit's work through the gospel message to come, to turn from our unbelief and to believe. And guess who turns and believes? Those in whom the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see that there is no way we could ever merit a place around the table if we weren't invited by the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who think they deserve a place around the table don't come. They find other things more important. And in the end, they will never taste the banquet of the Lord. But those who know that we are undeserving, we jump at the opportunity to join the banquet. And we respond to this invitation with passionate joy. Why? Because we know we did not buy our own seat. 
We know that our seat was purchased by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like we were carried to the table of the Lord by Jesus Christ himself. We are offered a seat where we never could belong on our own. And here's another glorious truth from this text. There is still room at the table. At least right now, in this moment, there is room at the table. Look at verse 22. The servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. (laughs) That's glorious. It will not always be that way. But right now, in this moment, still there is room. And so what does the master say to the servant? Go out to the highways and the hedges. Go to the least likely, the forgotten, the the downcast, the outcast, the push to the margins and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Friends, there will be a time when the full number of guests have arrived and the door is closed. But right now, in this moment, there is room at the table, which is incredibly good news. This is good news if you think that you walking in here, have secured a place at the table on your own. And even as we have sung the truths of God's word and prayed the truths of God's word, and now God's word has been proclaimed, the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to see, you know what, that's me. I thought I merited a place at the table on my own, but I have never responded to the invitation of Jesus Christ to turn and to come. Friends, it is incredibly good news that there is still, in this moment, maybe not in three seconds or three minutes or three hours or three years, from now, but there is in this moment still room at the table. This is also good news if you think that you are too far from God, you've done too much, you don't have a religious background, you have lived a really immoral life. This is good news because Jesus only saves one kind of person, those who don't deserve it. You see, you and I are in this story. We are the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. We are those on the highways and the hedges, the homeless, the orphan, that are invited into the table. This is also good news this morning if you are trusting in Jesus following Jesus, but wondering, always wondering, always worrying if you are trusting enough or if you are faithful enough or if you are Christian enough or if you are doing enough. I think I have a place at the table. I trust in Jesus. I want a place at the table. I believe in Jesus. But I wonder, what if if there's a time where my faith is weak and, and my seat is given to someone else? Friend, listen, the good news is that your place at the table is not earned or maintained by your effort. It is provided through the generous sacrifice and completed work of Jesus Christ. Which means you can rest in him. And finally, this is good news for the church. Like when we look around our world, it can be discouraging, can it? It seems like few of the truly influential, few of the truly powerful are actually following Jesus. In fact, as we look around, it seems as though David was right. The wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. 
And maybe you've wondered if the gospel is actually good news, if the gospel is actually working, when it seems like the church has so little clout, so little political power in our world. And this is good news because the banquet may not be filled with those whom we think ought to be there. It will be filled with those who don't deserve it. And it will be filled with all whom God has chosen. And that should give us hope. And this is good news. As we take the gospel message out to our neighbors and our friends and relatives, it is good news because God still saves sinners through the work of Jesus Christ. There is still a place at the table. God will still save his own. His banquet will be filled so we can have hope that no matter how lost someone may seem, No matter how poor or blind or lame or crippled they may seem, no matter how far they may seem out in the highways and hedges, God has the power to save. And he still is carrying people to his banquet table. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.